Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. For this upcoming few weeks, we're going to be talking about the question, why be Christian? After so many of us have gone through a process of deconstructing uh, our inherited Christianity, which was in so many cases based on biblical inerrancy, divine wrath, and exclusion in Jesus' name. After we've deconstructed those ideas, people often find themselves asking, well, then why should I be Christian? This important question comes from a place that's much deeper than just cynicism. It's an honest question. The founder of the legendary San Francisco bakery tartine, Chad Robinson, writes in his book about this idea of the perfect loaf. Uh, He had in his head, as he started out baking, the idea of the perfect loaf, dark, caramelized, snappy crust, this moist, chewy, aromatic crumb with a dramatic rise and a sweet flavor. The quest for that perfect loaf energized Robertson throughout the better part of a decade, and he went across the world from upstate New York to Alpine France to coastal northern California as he was apprenticing himself to the best bakers he could find until he found his way toward this perfect loaf. Have you ever had a moment like this where you are caught up by a vision of goodness, something that you want to see in the world or out of your life that's, that's good and it's compelling and it draws you, it energizes you forward. Maybe it's the vision of a good relationship uh, with a spouse or with a parent or with a child and that vision of that good relationship sustains you when things are really rough and rocky. Or maybe it's the idea of doing a home project the right way. Like you could totally like cut some corners, but if you do it the right way, it's going gonna, it's gonna to look so good. It's going to feel so good. It's going to last so long and it energizes you through that process. Or maybe it's the beautiful vision of a just society that sustains the hard work of undoing systemic racism and working for the inclusion of all people. There's something magnetic about goodness, isn't there? Every book we read, every podcast we listen to, every time we tell a story, the pull is always, the hook is always, will good prevail? Does this turn out good in the end or tragic? And throughout our whole lives, we are all of us oriented toward goodness. From birth, before we have any language at all, right away, an infant will let you know what they like and what they dislike, very clearly. And our pursuit of good only expands as we develop the good that we're interested in, grows from what I personally want, my personal preferences, to the good of my immediate loved ones, then the good of my family, and then the group, and then onward and outward to the good of my country or, my, or even all humanity or even the good of all living things around us. 
Goodness is magnetic and energizing. Beauty, truth, justice, love, all that is good, it moves us. When we sit down to a task, nothing gives us more stamina and purpose than to have the idea of doing good, good work, and the good work that our good work will bring about. We're magnetically drawn toward goodness. But here's the catch. Good isn't the only thing that exerts a magnetic pull on us. We also are all living within the magnetic field of our own ego. This precious individual self that each one of us has, has its own magnetic force. And what it ends up doing is pulling our energy away from what's real and good toward what will comfort us, what will protect us. So for example, you're at a dinner party with your family. You're so happy to reconnect. You're hearing how others are doing. You're present to everyone. It's a lovely evening. But then someone says something that feels to you like a slight. It's a commentary on an aspect of yourself that you're sensitive about. And then suddenly, whoosh, all the energy and attention that you have is wrenched away from others and the party, and it's diverted to brooding, right? You're brooding. What did they mean by that? What did, what did that mean? Did everybody see that? Did everyone hear that? And suddenly, your energy is focused not on loving and connecting with your family, but on assuaging your wounded sense of self, Maybe you're rehearsing the witty comebacks you could have said that would have cut that person down to size. Or maybe you're seething. They always do this. Ugh. Or maybe you double down on being the nice one to win everyone's admiration and to cover up the momentary blip. We can all relate to this, can't we? I mean, this, this magnetic ego. Philosopher, uh, philosopher Iris Murdoch describes this so well. She says, we are anxiety-ridden animals. Our minds are continually active, fabricating an anxious, usually self-preoccupied, often falsifying veil, which partially cancels out the world. Our states of consciousness are not trivial and unimportant. They are profoundly connected with our energies and our ability to choose and to act. So we're all drawn magnetically by goodness, but along the way, the countering force of our self-protective compulsions bend the arc of our energies back, and we find ourselves unable to do the good that we wish to do. We find ourselves unable to see clearly what would be good in any situation because we become too preoccupied with our fears, anxieties, and concerns. This, this situation, I would suggest, is where all of our human wisdom traditions get going. It's on helping us to relax the grip of our compulsive anxieties and self-protection and helping us relax into reality so we can participate in what is good. We need these wisdom traditions to show us the way out, the way out of compulsion and into the freedom to see and participate in what is good. But here's our trouble. We live in a time where our wisdom traditions really seem to have broken down. If we lived 100, maybe 200 years ago, you would be born into a culture that had a monolithic, ethical, moral wisdom tradition. 
These traditions would tell you what the problem was and how to go about addressing it. And for better or for worse, the tradition was for most people just assumed. We just lived in a wisdom tradition together. But in the last hundred years, our world has undergone what philosopher Charles Taylor calls the Nova effect. So rather than living in a culture that has one more or less consistent wisdom tradition that we all subscribe to, our previously robust wisdom traditions have shattered out in a million different directions like a supernova. Now, to be clear, I think this needed to happen. This nova effect created the space for many of the strides of social justice and liberation that we've seen in the past decades. Right? We've we got room to breathe, to question, to change, to grow. That's really good. But still, it's made, us, made it much harder for us to trust and to give ourselves over to any one wisdom tradition. Our world has become smaller, and so now we regularly have contact with a wide variety of wisdom traditions, and no, we no longer feel confident that ours has all the answers. We've lost trust in the institutions that said that they would secure goodness for our culture. Here in America, both the church and the state seem to have failed to make Westerners reliably good. And as we hear more clearly from the voices of those who were crushed and harmed by government and religion, we're increasingly skeptical of the claims to goodness. We're paying more attention to the nuances of individual circumstances, and that makes us aware of systemic privilege and marginalization, and that makes discerning good in any one case really complicated. So we have these multiple layers of reasons why we find it hard to trust our wisdom traditions. And so we're left asking, well, who should I be? What's good for me to do? What would be good for society? Can, can we even be good? Or is that just rosy idealism? I think what we're in search of is a robust way of seeing ourselves and the world that would reliably, consistently point us toward the good that we long to be part of. A way that's not violent, not arrogant, that doesn't insist on being the only way, but in which we can root deeply. We're searching for firm ground to stand on, which will help us raise our kids and develop ourselves in ways that will flourish, that will give us steady goodness while remaining open to dialogue. Well, I want to suggest, as an answer to our question, why, why be Christian? I want to suggest that the wisdom of Jesus is a beautiful and rich and reliable and steady place to root ourselves into goodness. Jesus teaches thoughtful, robust, and deeply wise ways of being that reliably point us toward goodness. The major problem with Christianity in its two millennia history has been how rarely we've taken Jesus seriously as a teacher of wisdom. Mostly, Christianity has made Jesus into a cog, albeit a divine and essential cog, but a cog in the wheel of a mechanism of salvation, right? Sins of the world, insert Jesus, turn the crank, salvation. Christendom has focused on theories about Jesus, theories about Jesus, but we have not often listened to Jesus, nor have we often put his teaching into practice. But think on it. I mean, in Jesus' day, he was wildly popular. 
because people thought his teaching really made sense of their world, really was the best wisdom that they had heard on offer. Nobody had any theories of atonement. No one had any theories about doctrine of incarnation. No one thought that this was anything other than the revitalization and culmination of their ancient wisdom tradition. People followed Jesus because he taught them how to live good lives in the world. Jesus' primary intention was to teach us to live in light of the present availability of the goodness of God, no matter our circumstances. Let me say that again. Jesus' primary intention was to teach us to live in light of the present availability of the goodness of God, no matter our circumstances. Why be Christian? Because when we practice what Jesus teaches, Christianity has a beautiful and vital contribution to this human conversation about participating in goodness. Today, most theologians agree that the core message that Jesus taught, the gospel of Jesus, was this proclamation. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now, all of that language has gotten encrusted with the barnacles of historical repetition. But if we refresh the language, here's what Jesus was teaching. Rethink everything you know. Repent. Rethink everything you know in light of this fact, the present availability of divine goodness, the rule of God at hand for you. As an alternative to the kingdom of Caesar, Jesus taught the current present reign of God, a place that was safe and good to be for all, especially those crushed under the wheel of empire. We get an overview of Jesus' teaching in his Sermon on the Mount. We could call this the core curriculum of Christianity. And really, it's just an explication of this gospel that Jesus taught. Rethink everything you know in light of the present availability of God's goodness. That's really what the Sermon on the Mount is doing, is rolling that out and its implications in, into our lives. And I want to run through it really quickly. This is going to be the Sermon on the Mount in like five minutes, so here we go. Okay, the Sermon on the Mount starts with the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are the meek, blessed are those who mourn. You've probably heard them. And despite the very common teaching that these are elevated states of being, Jesus is saying, be poor in spirit, because it's good to be poor in spirit. Be meek, be mourning. Uh, really what Jesus is doing is speaking to the crushed and oppressed mournful people around him who lived with daily injustice. And he's telling them, these circumstances that look like they disqualify you from the good life, look like you can't be blessed because you're crushed, because you're mourning. Actually, they don't disqualify you from the good life because the divine goodness is with you here in these circumstances. By common assumption, you're crushed and marginal, but your lives are full of beauty and meaning and good because God is right with you. Then the whole of the Sermon on the Mount is a working out of the implications of that radical upside-down turn of reality. If God really is with and for everyone, if the people that we tend to consider cursed are actually blessed because God is with them, then it turns out we have the resources that we need to release our compulsive self-protection, that magnetic ego, and instead participate in the goodness of love. 
So goodness isn't in rule keeping, but it's in loving others, intending their good. And so Jesus gives a series of pictures of what that would look like, that way of love. So we won't just not murder, we'll set aside anger and condemnation entirely. We won't just not use others to satisfy our desires, we'll honor them and protect their dignity. We won't just not manipulate others with our words, we'll respect the integrity of their choices. We won't just not exact revenge, we will seek the good of all, even those who are our enemies. That's what love looks like in action. These are snapshots, not rules, of the kinds of actions that, make, uh, that mark those who see everyone as deeply loved by God. Because then we live in a world where the deepest reality is divine love, we can release our most common compulsions. And Jesus works through several of them. The compulsion to impress others, to get affection and esteem. The compulsion to worry about our security, to be fearful and anxious. And the compulsion to assert control over others around us, often by being manipulative with what uh, one theologian calls condemnation engineering, right? Like if I, if I just condemn you a little bit, you'll snap in line, right? This is the Jesus wisdom. Because divine love is the heartbeat of reality, you really can let go of these compulsions to secure esteem, security, and control. These compulsions that constantly get in our way of loving others. And you really can learn how to see every person in the light of love. And how? Well, just enroll as a student of this way. Put it into practice. Try and learn and develop. Don't worry about getting it all right immediately because all this teaching rests on this wider context of constant divine love. So there's no fear or shame or guilt in the learning process, just patient, kind help as we learn more and more to see others in light of divine love, which is for us in every circumstance, no matter what happens. And that's the Sermon on the Mount. This is a beautiful way. It's a way of being which if we give ourselves to it, deepen into it, train in it, can reliably lead us into goodness. Notice that there's not a lot of fixed absolutes here. Jesus doesn't give rules or laws, just wisdom. You live in the light of divine goodness, no matter your circumstances, so you can learn the way of radical love for all without compulsion to secure yourself by affection, security, or control just by being a student of Jesus. It's not complicated. There's a lot of room for adjusting to our individual circumstances. And it allows us to be open to dialogue with others because it's not a very dogmatic way. We see the beauty of this wisdom shown so often in the example of Jesus' life. For example, uh, we see Jesus playing very fast and loose with rules whenever they come into contact with human flourishing. Right? So you've got the Sabbath, and well, if someone's in trouble, we're going to help them. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if it's the Sabbath. Good is about human flourishing, not rule keeping. So just use your best judgment about what will lead to flourishing in your world. We see Jesus regularly trusting that the divine is good and therefore refusing to manipulate or seize control. This is really interesting. Have you ever noticed how unconcerned Jesus seems about his little movement that he's starting? Like, Anytime Jesus starts picking up steam and people are really starting to think he's something special, he's like, all right, we're going someplace else. 
his campaign manager today would be livid, right? You've got momentum. Jesus is also totally fine picking a band of disciples who are just fully unpromising. Like, I mean, if I was on a mission to literally change the course of human history, I would not choose fishermen or tax collectors or uneducated farmers to get the job done, which really just shows the limitations of my imagination, right? Jesus isn't bothered. He's relaxed because he actually believes in the goodness and the truth of what he's teaching. So he's not anxious about it. And perhaps most strikingly, we see Jesus confident that good really is indomitable. When his teaching lands him in hot water with the oppressive Roman Empire, he insists that the violent powerhouse of of the oppressive Roman Empire has no power to stop this thing that God is doing. The good that he's bringing about into the world can't be stopped because it's divine, not even divine death can crush out this divine love. Now, over the millennia, a lot of theological stuff has been added to Christianity. And for much of our history, we've been taught that it's more important to believe things about Jesus than to follow Jesus. And I want to be clear, believing things about Jesus, incarnation, atonement, resurrection, trinity, it's fine. It's fine to believe things about Jesus. I believe some of these things about Jesus. But it is enrolling as students of Jesus' teaching that's going to lead us to participate in goodness. The wisdom and the way of Jesus are robust and beautiful contributions to our human conversation about goodness. So, in our day, many people who have grown up in the church are asking themselves, why be Christian? And I'd suggest one reason we are asking this question is because our churches have not reliably presented us with the wisdom of Jesus, and our churches have not taught us how to practice that wisdom. And instead, we focused on doctrines about Jesus' divinity and our eternal destination rather than allowing Jesus' voice to call us to wise ways of goodness. And this has led us to another consequence, which I think is, is important for us today. It's made it harder for us to see Jesus in this wider human conversation about wisdom. If the most important thing about Jesus is what we believe about the incarnation, say, or the resurrection, right? That's the most important thing. Then when we sit down to conversation with a Buddhist or a Muslim or an agnostic, the thing that seems like it matters most is getting them to believe what we do, right? But if instead the most important thing about Jesus is the wisdom that Jesus teaches for how to be human, well, then it actually turns out that we have a lot to talk about with our neighbors from other traditions. We can share in meaningful dialogue about what will lead toward human flourishing, and we can learn from each other's insights while remaining deeply rooted in our own traditions. And we can contribute the wisdom of Jesus without violence, without needing to control, without needing to have power over, just as Jesus did. So why be Christian? Because the teaching of Jesus is a way of wisdom that when put into practice really does reliably lead us to lives full of goodness, lives that are good for others. 
Because this wisdom and way of Jesus are a robust answer to our deep human longing to participate in goodness. Because the wise and good counsel of Jesus has so much to contribute to the flourishing of all people, to helping the world see every person and every circumstance in light of divine love. I think our world today very much needs students of Jesus who will share his wisdom humbly and companionably, listening well and sharing generously with open hands and trusting hearts. Will you pray with me? God of goodness, you lead us into ways of wisdom. We ask that you would deepen us into this way which leads us reliably to participate in the goodness we long for. We hope that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.